For the week of July 15th, 2015, this is the Energy Gang from Green Tech Media. In Washington, D.C., I am Stephen Lacey, a senior editor with Green Tech Media. Hello. Welcome to the show. Uh, thanks for joining us. This week, we are talking about Spain's proposed tax on battery storage systems, the Australian government's decision to stop financing wind and solar, and a ridiculous new report warning that solar is going to cause another financial crisis. Despite the controversial nature of these topics, there's a uh, certain quiet on the show this week. It's the first time, I, I think since January, uh, that we haven't had any guests join us. So I turn to my two regular co-hosts who are with me every week, Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shaw. Catherine's a partner with 38 North Solutions here in D.C. How was your fourth? What's new? It was great. I was just this week in Jigger's Neck of the Woods. I had to give a 7 a.m. I was on a 7 a.m. panel on Monday morning at Nehruk. It's like one of those graveyard shifts. But uh, it was pretty ni- nice in New York that day. I got to eat lunch in Bryant Park. So, Jigger, you've had a nice week, huh? I have. And and I, I definitely know the Nehruk people are in town. I'm getting a lot of emails from commissioners. Wait, why, why is Jigger having a particularly nice week? Because the weather's wet. nice in New York. Oh, yeah. yeah, it's beautiful. It's pretty nice here, too. Uh, Jigger's the president of Generate Capital, of course, there in New York City. What else is new, sir? How was your break? Great. I was in Turks and Caicos and, uh, you know, saw my fair share of solar systems while I was down there, enjoyed the beach. It was... Uh, all in all, a fantastic trip. What's the solar market there like? Oh, it's awful. I guess Fortis from Canada owns the utility down there and basically is actively telling everyone that solar is illegal and they don't like it and it causes cancer and whatever. But people are doing it anyway just because they are paying like 40 cents a kilowatt hour for power. Well, that's a nice segue into our first two topics. We're going to talk about Spain and Australia, and we'll go to Spain first. In 2008, uh, if you'll remember... Spain's solar market went gangbusters after the government established a very high feed-in tariff there that was funded by taxpayers, a unique way of structuring the program. When the financial crisis hit, uh, sending Spanish banks and the government into a tailspin, solar took a big hit. Deep retroactive cuts to the feed-in tariff were passed, uh, which angered developers and homeowners and uh, severely cut returns. Today, Spain is on the verge of another major policy change, this one arguably more severe. The Minister of Industry, Energy, and Tourism proposed a law last month that would tax PV system owners who use batteries to consume more of their solar electricity. If passed as written, the law would charge consumers $10 per kilowatt for a solar storage hybrid system. For consumers with systems above 15 kilowatts, the charges are even more severe. They would rise to $41 per kilowatt. And, and the fees would destroy the economics of solar plus storage in Spain. Clean energy supporters say that's exactly what Spanish utilities and their supporters in government want. Jager, this this seems like a fundamentally different uh, issue from the feed-in tariff cuts. The the early cuts were due to the need to reduce government spending. And and I know that there are some problems um, with a deficit in the electricity sector, um, but this new proposal seems really driven by utilities looking to stop self-consumption. What's your take? Yeah, I mean, this is all fruit, like, this is all, uh, you know, fruit from the poisonous tree, right? So, I mean, basically, Spain screwed up their feed-in tariffs. We all told them that they screwed up their feed-in tariffs, told them a long time ago that they should have had a declining um, block grant program like we did in California. They didn't listen. 
they basically bankrupted the system. They then had to be one of the first countries to renege on part of their feed-in tariff. And they're still in that void. I mean, it's sort of like the Greek you know, crisis, like the Spanish electricity crisis has never let up. They have been in bad financial shape since 2008. And now that storage has gotten so cheap and the Germans have started deploying a lot of storage through DZ4 and other companies, um, they know that all these companies are now going to come to Spain and they're going to start taking people who are paying 20, 25 euro cent per kilowatt hour prices off grid and, um, you know, the, and the Spanish are trying desperately to figure out a way to, you know, stem the bleeding. And, it's, and their overreaction has caused an uproar. I mean, Avaz, I think, got 180,000 signatures to their petition in less than a week. I mean, they, one of the petitions, I think, crashed the server that it was on because so many people were desperately trying to sign it. So, you know, this is fantastic news, I think, for the solar industry, which is it's caused such an uproar that the... Spanish people will finally force the Spanish government to step in and fix the problems in the Spanish solar industry. In theory, yes, but the numbers do tell a different story. Last year, we saw seven megawatts of solar systems installed in Spain, and that drop-off was due to just because of the threat of this solar tax, which was actually initially proposed in 2013 before storage plus solar became something that was uh, really financially viable in Spain. In 2004, I was talking to uh, Adam James, who we had on the last podcast uh, to talk about global demand. 2004, we had six megawatts in Spain. And of course, that surge in 2008 brought us to 2.6 gigawatts. And last year, we saw seven megawatts just because of this threat of the tax. You know, we're looking at similar numbers. We might see, you know, tens of megawatts this year. But I don't know if the solar industry is really succeeding here, Jigger, if they're winning, that is. Isn't no. this, though, political suicide for these guys? I mean, the the fines that they're talking about are like double the amount of the fine for leaking radioactive nuclear waste. It just seems ridiculous. And it seems like, Jigger, it's got to be politically totally unpalatable and would and would actually incentivize people to go the other way. No, that's exactly what I'm saying, is that you basically are at a point right now where there's a lot of people in Spain who don't care at all about our issues, Right, so it was the solar industry in Spain that was fighting this fight by itself, and because of the complete overreach by the Spanish utility companies, all of these people who really shouldn't care about this issue suddenly care about this issue. We now have hundreds of thousands of people in Spain who are just saying, "This is our primary focus this week because um, because you've basically so overreached that we're forced to get our head out of our sand and actually." deal with this, right? I mean, it's not dissimilar to lots of other issues we've faced recently in the world, whether it's the Greek crisis or the Confederate flag coming down or whatever else. And when people so overreach that it causes a mass defection from the public, then, you know, suddenly politicians pay attention and we get what we want. Well, of course, you have national elections coming up in Spain later this year. So this does play into the proposed tax and you had hundreds of thousands of signatures on this petition asking them to abandon the tax. And the uh, right-leaning popular party, which got 70% of the vote in 2011, uh, this year is expected to only pull off 40%. Uh, you, of course, have the socialists on the left, and then you have two, um, one anti-austerity party and one moderate party that are really gaining traction. And so because the popular party is sort of in trouble here, 
there is speculation that they could abandon this tax, not just because of the solar industry's pressure, but because of the, the political calculus. Yeah, so yeah. let me ask you a question, Jigger, about the utilities, because the utilities are, it seems like, pretty much the force behind all of this. How could the government resolve the issue so the utilities aren't, aren't feeling so vulnerable? Well, this is the problem, right, is that the government already has solved this problem for the utilities, and it caused a mess. So the government said that all um, excess costs to the very, very expensive renewable energy feed-in tariff programs will be borne by the taxpayers of Spain. And then at the exact wrong time, we had a financial crisis. So Spain took on enormous amounts of debt off of the books of the utilities, as opposed to just raising rates. Spain then basically, you know, became part of the sort of pigs analogy. So Portugal, Italy, you know, Greece and Spain. Um, and, you know, and then Spain said, well, we're blaming this on the renewable energy industry that we got into this mess. And so the Spanish political class basically overcorrected against the renewable energy industry, which, by the way, has happened in Greece as well. So if you look at Greece, the German government has not been friendly to Greek renewable energy. And so Greek renewable energy has also fallen off. So Greece is importing more fossil fuels than ever, which is completely ridiculous, um, and digging the hole deeper. Um, and, you know, I think the Spanish politicians have basically, in, in this sort of populist Tea Party-esque vein, have overcorrected and suddenly we're finally getting people to say that the pendulum has swung the wrong way. But the politicians got into this mess because they were trying to protect the utilities in 08. It's worth noting that the subsidies, the government funded subsidies to renewable energy in 2012, in 2012 hit 8 billion euros. And that's like 1% of Spain's GDP. So the government tried to initially protect taxpayers, and they didn't raise rates. Um, meanwhile, they're trying to uh, pay for all this renewable energy that came on the grid all at once. And so you have this very uh, severe deficit that they're starting to, to now grapple with. But, but I, I mean, I do think there's a broader implication here is that the number one thing that I know of that can save Greece, you know, Portugal, Spain, and Italy, according to McKinsey, is resource efficiency solutions. So solar is just a symptom of this. I mean, you know, deploying a trillion dollars worth of energy efficiency and smart grid and electric vehicles and all these other things is how precisely you actually bring a million young people into the workforce. And it's, it's how you actually turn the Paris COP conversations into a productive way to help, you know, some of these countries get out of their mess. And, and it's just one of these very frustrating things where on the one side we have all this positive news about the Paris negotiations for climate change and on the other side you have the European Investment Bank who's trying to invest you know, billions of euros into projects in the Caribbean and projects in Africa and other places but basically you can't get the Europeans to work this out themselves to invest a trillion euros into their own economies in ways that actually save money because of mistakes they made in 2008. Well, as we all know, when you're trying to stop the bleeding, you don't always make the most sound decisions. And Spain is truly just trying to, to stop the bleeding at this point. Yeah, and it just causes a downward spiral, as Jigger says. If we can, if, you know, to, to expand technology reach and get a lot more out there is going to help solar and everybody else. So trying to limit storage strikes me as the wrong way to go. Well, that there's two ways to look at this issue. One is the Spanish government is trying to correct itself 
and try to raise as much money as possible to pay for the the subsidies for renewables that um, from 2008 to 2012. The other uh, more cynical way to look at this is that most of the cabinet officials in uh, the popular party today have ties to utilities, and many in the industry are very skeptical and think that this is a way for the utilities to limit the number of people who are cutting their electricity consumption or completely leaving the grid. And at one point, there was a proposal to not allow anyone to defect from the grid completely, that you had any solar system or storage system had to be tied to the grid. So there's this whole other issue of political influence uh, that hasn't quite been proven, but I think uh, there are enough connections out there to show that um, many people have a right to be very cynical about this. Yeah, I mean, but I mean, just to be clear, and I don't think that this is hard to prove. I mean, Spain is basically run by you know Koch brothers like entities, right? I mean, so Spain has ten or fifteen very powerful families. They own the utilities. They own, you know, these are companies like Abengoa, like the others, and and they're some of them are doing great stuff, and they made a lot of money on wind and solar when things were high, and now they're on the other side. So Spain has always had this power structure issue with, you know, very wealthy families having much much more influence than the rest of, you know, the population. And this is just playing itself out here. Speaking of uh, cynical politics, we move over to Australia now, where Prime Minister Tony Abbott has been systematically dismantling the country's clean energy programs. The latest controversy unfolded over the weekend after the government sent a letter to the National Green Bank called the Clean Energy Finance Corporation, saying it could no longer support conventional wind and rooftop solar projects. Rather, Abbott, uh, and other ministers say they should focus exclusively on, quote, new and emerging technologies. On its face, the directive does seem reasonable. Wind and solar have become cheap enough to finance without government support. Uh, however, the Finance Corporation was focused on uh, assisting solar projects for low-income citizens and multifamily, multifamily housing units, which is certainly an underserved part of the market. Renewable energy advocates are calling it an extraordinary and prolonged attack on the industry. Just one example uh, from the Abbott government dismantling climate and ener clean energy policy. Abbott says the government is steering the $10 billion Green Bank back to its original mission, which is to fund uh, emerging technologies. So I got to say I'm a little bit split on this one. It doesn't really make sense to have the government backing wind and solar deals that could be easily structured in the private sector, um, it, unless it's a special circumstance. But the Finance Corporation was trying to assist with hard-to-serve rooftop solar markets, as I mentioned. So that seems like a big loss. Jigger, how do you think of it on balance? I think when you look at Australia in the macro, Australia invested about $3.7 billion into wind and solar in 2014, which was the lowest since 2009. And then they had some peak years in the middle there. And I look, I agree with you. I've made this argument with the U.S., um, loan guarantees. Like, you know, much of those U.S. loan guarantees end up going to Warren Buffett and to NRG for the utility scale projects that they did um, that were, you know, largely done by Sun Edison for solar and sun power. So I think transitioning this fund towards doing technologies that actually can really reduce the cost of new wind and new solar using non-bankable technologies um, and helping to commercialize them would be a great use of 
the money. The problem is, is that I worry that the Abbott government is really just making stuff up and that they're not actually serious about transitioning this. I mean, because separately, they've actually tried to kill this entire program. And oh, what yeah. they're saying is, you know, we, we want you to stop doing traditional wind and solar until we have time to kill this program. So, yeah, they still want to phase it out. Yeah, yeah, and Abbott says that coal is good for humanity and that wind damages health. So he's in, you know, from an ideological standpoint, he does not want this to oh, be successful. It's, yeah, it's very clear where he is. He's been very firm on that. And he most recently set up a task force to investigate the health impacts of wind. So we know how he feels about that industry. Uh, at the same time, you know, I, I agree with you, Jigger. Like when you look at the the proxy, which is the loan guarantee program, if they came out and started supporting more big wind farms that could easily be picked up uh, by corporate buyers or by other investment banks, I would not be in support of that. I think that would be a terrible use of money. And you see advocates in Australia who are lashing out at the Abbott government saying, wind is the cheapest resource by far. We should be supporting the industry. There's a real conflict there. And if it is the cheapest resource, then you shouldn't need uh, a government bank to help finance projects. I will go back to the one major example, and that is if this bank, they, they set aside $100 million recently to help low-income families install solar systems on their rooftops, that is something that the private sector uh, hasn't quite figured out, and the government should be helping finance. Yeah, I think that's right. So, uh, you know, look, I think... The good thing about Australia that we all have to, I think, celebrate is they've got over 4,100 megawatts of solar installed already in Australia on roughly 60,000 megawatts of total power grid. You know, to put that in comparison, the U.S. power grid is roughly 1,000 gigawatts. Um, so, you know, the U.S. power grid is something on the order of like 16 times larger. So if we were to have the same penetration of solar, we'd be at roughly 60,000 megawatts of solar in, uh, installed in um, the United States, which were not there. So Australia has done an extraordinary job of deploying solar. I think it's something like one in nine households now have solar on them. They've got over 3,000 schools now that have solar on them, which, you know, on a per school basis, we haven't even come close. I think we have 3,000 schools total that have solar on them in, in the U.S. And so largely, I would say Australia is an enormous success story. And, and, and this bashing by the Abbott government of wind and solar is going to backfire on them in a big way politically, which means that we're going to be able to reach even higher heights and higher penetration, I think, as soon as we can, you know, get the Abbott government out of office. Yeah, and they have they have such a tremendous solar and wind resource there. It's enormously popular. There's 87% support for renewables, and there's only 23% of support for coal um, in the public. And they have all that infrastructure. Remember, they, they spent all that money on transmission, so they have all this great infrastructure out there, so it's very easy to deploy this. And as long as they don't artificially raise the cost of capital, then I think... You know, it's it's you know once Abbott gets out. Now I know he's enormously popular for having reinstated um, knighthoods and damehoods, uh, but um, other than that, I don't think he's very well liked. Let's um, put this into a context that some of our American listeners can understand. So, Jigger, when you think about like the New York Green Bank or the Connecticut Green Bank, they're structured very differently. But um, let's say the the governors in those states said. We only want to use this bank to finance up-and-coming technologies. What do you think that would mean, and what, do you, what, what is available out there 
that you think it would be realistic for the government to support that is new and emerging? Perhaps it's wind and solar, but it's new enough that uh, private institutions wouldn't touch it on their own. Well, this is this is you know what I argue for all the time, and this is why I get beat up all the time, right? I, I think that when you look at energy technology, you need to figure out a way to get a trillion dollars into it to be able to make it relevant to climate change or whatever other issue we care about. And so that means that I like incremental improvements that are still not bankable, right? So there are companies like in California, Sunpreme or, you know, Cubotics on the two-axis tracker side or, you know, some of these companies on DCDC um, Electronics and others who have not yet been blessed by the yield codes as bankable. And so to me, that's what the Green Bank and others should be focused on, or the low income piece you talked about, Stephen, where, you know, Solar City has already spent $200 million marketing to all these people, and they're rejecting 5% of the deals coming in that they could be saying yes to if they had a loan guarantee or a first loss reserve from the Green Bank, right? So to me, it's those level of boring incremental technologies that we should be supporting, as opposed to some, you know, like really crazy out there you know, one once in a kind type thing, which even after we prove it out, it's still 30 years away from getting a trillion dollars. Like, you know, I err to the side of incremental breakthroughs as opposed to these radical breakthroughs um, for these types of funds. And I think that if they stuck to that, they would play a hugely important role on this bankability question. The way you framed it just there is really important in the beginning. And that is talking about helping these businesses grow making the state competitive, and, and really being a leader in technology development and business development. And when you look at the language around this shift in Australia, there's none of that. They just say plainly, yeah, we think we should support new and emerging technologies. There's really no description of what that is. There's no description of a vision of why they want to do that. And that's what's missing here. And that's why I think that this is more of a political move than a savvy move saying, yeah, we should be supporting technologies that need our help, not necessarily conventional wind and solar. Big difference between the two. Yeah, I don't know if you all remember back um, when Senator Bingaman was the chairman of Senate Energy and Natural Resources, but he had introduced a Clean Energy Development Authority that was not dissimilar from this, and that would really do exactly what Jigger had suggested uh, for the U.S., which is is interesting. It didn't it didn't ever get out of the Senate, but it was something everybody talked about. And the nuances are really important here. I mean, this is why I go postal on Bill Gates all the time. Because Bill Gates is saying exactly the opposite. He's saying that all of this money and all these authorities should bypass solar and wind because solar and wind are not worth deploying and that we need to figure out next generation nuclear or next generation this, next generation that, which I'm not opposed to. I think putting R&D into next generation nuclear or offshore wind or some of the other things that you know are not quite there on an economics basis is hugely important. But I just don't think that's the primary role of these types of authorities or green banks or other things. I think those things really should be, as you said it best there, Stephen, around near-term economic development, about, you know, valley of death, around, you know, helping these technology companies who've already gotten venture capital get over the finish line with, you know, mainstream finance. Let's see if you go postal on this last subject, Jigger. So for, for a couple of years as editor of Climate Progress, deputy editor of Climate Progress, working with Joe Rome, uh, I wrote story after story debunking the, the ludicrous political claims about the failure of the solar industry uh, and Obama's green energy boondoggle after the Solyndra bankruptcy. So I, I left that job partly because it was so exhausting cataloging the, the stupid stuff that people say every day in politics. 
But every once in a while, that part of me comes back, and I'm eager to address a particularly egregious claim. And the latest is a report from the Taxpayers Protection Alliance. And the report's called From Washington to Wall Street, How Government Policies Are Skewing Solar Investments. And um, we'll hear a little bit more about the organization from Catherine. Um, it, it recently formed this website called Solar Secrets that claims solar is going to cause the next big financial crisis, similar to what we saw in housing in 2008. It is uh, very hard to overstate how terrible this report is. Uh, and I want to play a clip here. Here's Drew Johnson, a senior fellow at the Taxpayers Protection Alliance, talking about the organization's findings. The the incentives that are available, such as the tax credit you just mentioned that's going to expire next year, uh, have really lured banks and um, lending institutions into betting on solar. They they think, well, government is basically propping up this industry. It's a way for us to get in at a you know discounted rate because government's paying some of the cost. The problem comes when either the demand for for you know home solar panels dries up, or and or caused by by the tax credits going away. When when some go away, uh, you're going to have a real problem with the as I mentioned the bubble bursting. So uh, you know all these all these big lenders are going to be. Uh, extended hundreds of millions of dollars into the solar marketplace, and it's going to be worthless. They're not going to be able to recoup, you know, pennies on the dollar. And so, when that happens, that's going to harm our economy because we're talking about you know, hundreds of millions and billions of dollars that uh, that basically the banks are going to be on the hook for. Uh, and then you get back to: Do taxpayers have to bail them out? Uh, does it hurt what they can lend people for mortgages and for, uh, you know, other things? So it really puts the whole economy uh, in, in danger. So so I've struggled whether to cover this report because it hasn't gotten much traction and it is just a really badly framed hatchet job. But if I've learned anything here in Washington, it is not to underestimate how influential stuff like this can be as it works its way through the ranks. And I think it's important that the solar industry sort of knows what kind of arguments are bubbling up here in political circles in Washington. So let's discuss. Catherine, the Taxpayers Protection Alliance, who are they, first off? Okay, before we get into the content of this so-called report, let's first talk about what they are as an organization. So the IRS uh, moniker is a 501c4. It's a tax-exempt social welfare organization. There are a lot of them out there. They have to do less than 50% political work. It's mostly issue campaigns. Um, for example, in the 2012 campaign, um, presidential campaign, there were about uh, you know conservative nonprofits. There were about 263 million dollars put into these C4s. On the liberal side, about 35 million. So there were more conservative than liberal. But in any case, it is a, legi- a legitimate way to organize. I mean. 38 North Solutions has a 501c4 through which we run issue campaigns. But this particular campaign, the Taxpayers Protection Alliance, um, pitches itself as a think tank. So the report has footnotes. It makes it look like it's really thoughtful about this. In fact, you know, from everything we can figure out, and some folks have sent me some information doing some opposition research, this is dark money. It's money that people who contribute to these C4s do not have to disclose who they are, so there is no way to trace where the money comes from. But it looks like they use the same consultants 
as the front groups that Arizona Public Service has admitted funding. I mean, these guys are out to get Solar City and other solar companies and try to drive them down. So we suspect it's Koch Brothers and other funding like that. But it is um, it is on a mission to try to put forward narratives that debunk and and reduce the credibility of solar. So that is the context by which we can talk about this report. So they are funded by the folks who do not want solar to be deployed. Indeed. And when the Koch brothers announced that they were going to put $900 million behind the 2016 campaign, ProPublica came out with a map attempting to connect all these different groups and where the the money was going. And it's hard they, to do because they don't oh, have it's very hard. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Right, right. And so th- they did make this connection, this group, Americans for Job Security, which funds a lot of different sub organizations, which is affiliated with the Kochs as a funder of the Taxpayers Protection Alliance. So uh, many people have looked into this. It is extremely hard to do, but you can pull enough threads to see that uh, there's a major affiliation there. So, you know, I I am just fascinated by these reports because they're like, they have this, you know, there's like a science behind the reports, which I think is fascinating. Like in this one particularly, they only mentioned Sun Edison once, even though we sort of invented all this stuff. And they they mentioned Solar City like 40 times. Yeah. So it's kind of interesting <laughs> yes, how... Yes, you can tell their target. <laughs> yeah, they're really going after Elon Musk and Solar City because they think that that's actually going to give them more press. But then when I Googled them, this report didn't even come up. So I think we're giving them more press than everyone else did. So I had to go to Bing and actually then go, then Bing them and search for best matches and only three stories came up. So I think we're like adding 25% of the total conversation around this report. Of course you had to um, go to Bing. Well, I, I couldn't get it on Google. It wasn't on the first page. and so Because so Google then, gives the most relevant searches. Clearly these guys aren't relevant. <laughs> so I just think the way it's constructed is just fascinating. Like It's just like if I actually replace solar with the intangible drilling credit for natural gas and oil, the report would read exactly the same way. And it would read beautifully, which is like, for instance, we do overinvest in natural gas and oil by 33% because of the intangible drilling credit. If that went away, then people would take, you know, people would have to take more risk and they would drill 33% less. And, you know, when you read like the hedge fund managers statements around the frackers and how they're not making money, um, like literally they make this exact argument. So it's like this, this, this wasn't even written for solar. They actually took this report and searched and replaced solar with some other word they probably used six months ago and then published it. But, it's fascinating. Yeah, agreed. But so let's talk. I, I, I want to go through some of the findings here. But first, to, to, on your point, on the natural gas point, like if these drillers go bust, the taxpayers aren't left holding the bag, though. And they're claiming that if solar goes bust, taxpayers will somehow be hit in a big way. And they don't prove exactly how that would happen. But, you know, yes, you could switch out the words, but I don't think you could make the same conclusion. If these natural gas drillers face financial, serious financial problems, which many of them are, we're not paying for it in a big way. No, we are actually. That's the thing is that like, I mean, and in fact, you're right that we're not holding the bag in solar, but we are holding the bag for um, natural gas because we are absolutely funding all of the natural gas export facilities. We are funding all of these other things, which will basically all be lost and the federal government will lose all that money if we don't actually have enough natural gas to export. Yeah, right? and we and have so, permanent tax provisions 
that incentivize oil and gas drilling of $18 billion a year. And other provisions in the tax code that help oil and gas, like between 50 and $100 billion a year, that's a lot of taxpayer money. Well, let right. me just say this. I talked to David Williams, one of the report's authors, and he is the head of the Taxpayers Protection Alliance. And he said that the organization does support keeping those uh, tax breaks in place, permanently embedded in the tax code, and supports taking away tax credits for solar, wind, and other renewable energies. So that's where I think like an organization like Taxpayers for Common Sense is so much better, right? So like that organization writes this report with Friends of the Earth and others called the Green Scissors Report, which says we could actually save like $500 billion over 10 years if we got rid of all subsidies. And that includes oil, gas, and coal, as well as solar, wind, and other things, right? And, and you know, I actually think we could live with the level playing field, right? But just to address this report directly, if we lost the tax credits at the end of 2016, all of the solar that was built using the loan guarantee programs, using SunShot, using all of these other incentives that they're talking about, net metering, et cetera, would all be fine. What could happen is that we actually install much less solar in 2017, which I've argued won't happen, but, 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 but that could happen. Whereas with natural gas and oil and coal, it's all about volume. If you have 50% less volume going through the same infrastructure, it bankrupts that infrastructure because that infrastructure actually you know, needs the fees that it gets from every gallon or every BTU that goes through. So we're in a much different situation. I mean, this report is exactly wrong for us, but exactly right for the oil and gas industry. We've talked a lot about the report without really walking through its conclusions. So I want to do that. I read through it a couple of times to see if I could understand it to see if there are any nuggets in there that make sense. And it's, it really is just such an awful report because there's no data to back up any of the claims. So as I said, I spoke with David Williams, who, you know, he was a nice enough guy. Most people are pretty nice. Um, I asked him to explain the arguments, and it really was abundantly clear that he just didn't know anything about the solar industry. And I suppose that was not a surprise for me, given the political nature of the document. But That's, uh, that's know, how plagiarizing <laughs> works. You just search and replace an old report and you're like I'm an expert. Well, I don't want to say it's plagiarized, but uh as I read through the report, uh, I I created two categories in my head for the arguments that they were making. One was like the truly absurd and the other was questions that I think are worth asking, but you could probably come to very different answers for if you know anything about the solar industry. And on the questions worth asking, I want to get your opinion jigger. So, first of the truly absurd, uh, I, they they pulled together all these disparate arguments. Pretty much everything, every talking point they could find to claim that there's some kind of dangerous bubble for taxpayers. The first was Solyndra and the loan guarantee program, which, as we know, is today making a profit for taxpayers. The second is the claim that electricity prices could drop quickly because of the abundance of natural gas, sinking solar investments, which is ludicrous. We know it's not the case when we look at almost every rate case around the country. Thirdly, they point to like intermittency issues and operations and maintenance costs as a threat to solar investments. Uh, they don't have any data there. We know that, of course, companies are really sophisticated and accurate at modeling energy production, which goes into the financial documents that they're putting out there. And the O&M piece is also very refined in the industry as well. And then they, of course, bring in net metering and cost shifting and claiming that this is going to destroy the pocketbooks of average consumers. And it's clear, we've talked about this over and over and over, regardless of how you model the cost shifting on the, either the solar advocacy side or on the utility side, it's clear that it's not going to have that huge of an impact you know, from everything that we've seen. There will be impacts, of course, depending on how you model it, but it's not going to destroy 
uh, rate payers. So then we get into the not so absurd questions to at least ask, right? To, they, they claim that securitization, you know, the bundling lots of projects together and selling them off on the secondary market will create risks like we saw in the mortgage industry. And their argument on this is, is pretty silly that somehow the, the expiration of the ITC is going to turn all these investments sour and banks will lose law, will pass losses onto tax payers. Um, you know, the expiration of the ITC isn't going to impact current projects that have already qualified. And the whole point of securitization is to, to, lower the cost of capital to build projects after the ITC expires in theory. But I, but this is where I want to get your thoughts, Jigger, because I want to know what the risks are here. Like, What are the real risks of mass securitization of solar assets? If the industry gets as big as we expect and we slice and dice this stuff in new ways, is there a real question about the types of risks that banks will take on? Yeah, I think that, you know, this has nothing to do with solar. It has to do with securitization. So the way securitization works is you take a whole bunch of loans, different FICO scores, different stuff, and you mix it into one big pool. And then you say to S&P and Moody's, what percentage of all the revenues that are in that pool do you think are AAA? Which means that for the next 20 years, those revenues will be there. And they'll say 50% of those revenues are guaranteed. That the most that they, this portfolio could possibly underperform is that 50% of the contracts go bust, but 50% will definitely be there. Right, And so then a pension fund says, okay, well, then that means I'll invest 50% of the dollars with the first position to get the first dollars coming back out, and I'll do it for 3.5% interest. Great. And then the guys who end up holding the other 50% have these pension funds in front of them, and then they're left with the rest of the stack, right? And so then they get a higher rate of return with the rest of the stack, because if the total return on the total portfolio was 8%, and the pension funds put in money at 35 or 4%, then that means the person holding the rest of the paper now gets 12% for what's left over, right? And then they might say, the, the S&P and Moody's guys might say, well, the next 30% is, is double A, and the next 10% is single A, and the next 4% is triple B, and that's how securitization works. Now, at the time at which their calculations are wrong because um, they did the math wrong, then the person that's left holding the bag, the guy who is in the in the the last position in line to get paid, is the one who loses the most money. And in mortgages, that person was told that this was still a safe investment. And so you had towns in Norway that were buying that last position um, at an expected return of like six or seven percent, and they lost everything because people started foreclosing on their mortgages. And so, you know, I think that we're not there yet. We're not slicing and dicing our stuff, you know, 14 different ways and selling it to, you know, random unsuspecting people. Everyone who's buying solar securitization paper right now has been uber educated because this is so new. But yeah, we do have the risk five, six, seven, eight years from now of getting into a bubble and, you know, and finding unsuspecting people buying stuff they don't understand. And I guess the question is, they claim that the average U.S. taxpayer will suffer and that the banks that are supporting this stuff are not going to be able to support infrastructure projects and that they're going to look for the government for a bailout. Uh, is that as absurd to you as it is on its face? Well, it's absurd given the facts on the ground today, but it's not absurd looking at the mortgage industry, right? I mean, when the mortgage industry tanked, the amount of money that was available for borrowers to buy mortgages um, and buy new homes was at an all-time low in 20, 
10, right, in 2011. In fact, if you had any blemishes whatsoever on your credit history, you couldn't buy a house. And that's freeing up only now, I would say in 2014 or so, that sort of got a little bit looser again. But, you know, there was five or six years in there where if you had good credit, but you had one blemish, you couldn't get a mortgage. We're not there in solar. I mean, you know, I, I pray for the day that we've done a trillion dollars of securitizations and we have that problem. But we certainly don't have that problem now. And this tax credit has nothing to do with it. The tax credit, in fact, is paid for by a separate bank and tax equity per supplier. The securitizations are only happening on the cash flow part of the deal. So the tax credit literally has nothing to do with securitization at all. So they're mixing and matching metaphors. That's why I'm saying I'm 100% sure that if we Google these, these sentences, that someone actually constructed this for some 2010 report for some other issue, and they literally just searched and replaced. Yeah, well, the, the, the confusion between the impacts here is what was most important to me. And essentially what you're saying is like, if this does happen, if we do face these real risks and we're seeing trillions of dollars in deals, it's going to be a bank problem and not necessarily a tax a, a taxpayer problem. Yeah? Yeah, the taxpayers won't be affected and the customers won't be affected, right? Because the customer basically just pays their electricity bill. So they were going to pay $100 a month to the utility company. Now they're paying $50 a month to the solar person. So they just pay their $50. Like that's the extent of their risk, right? And so they, it's the guy who invests who, you know, has to do their due diligence on what am I exactly buying? What rights do I have? What were my, my recourses if something goes wrong? And that's what an institutional buyer is supposed to do. They're not supposed to just buy paper because Goldman Sachs told them to buy it. Yeah, the report gave like no sense that solar panels actually provide generation and any benefit at all. It was just like it was a thing sitting there. It was just a money suck rather than actually producing electricity. Totally. It was as if like they're slapping these non-functioning panels on roofs and then yeah. coming up with some strange financial scheme to get people to pay for them. So one last point here that I put in this bucket of questions that we need to ask. This, there's this other piece, um, and that's that homeowners, anecdotally, we've seen a couple of reports that, that, that they can't sell their properties if they take on leases. So they, they cite a few press articles from, from magazines showing that you know a few homeowners have had problems, but as of yet, there is no documented systematic problem. Um, and that is you know when people try to sell their houses, if they're under a lease, it's very hard to transfer that lease. And we've had a couple very vocal people say that that's a major problem. So we should be looking at that as a, as a problem down the road. Of course, a new report from the Lawrence Berkeley National Lab. Well, it's not really a new report, but um, that report showed that solar does increase property values. So you have that other factor. But anyway, I put this in the bucket of not a bad question to ask because, you know, it's going to be an issue we're going to have to pay attention to. Jigger, do you suspect that it will become more of a systematic problem or is it just going to be a few anecdotes of people who have trouble selling their houses with leases? I, you know, I think the solar industry is so good at self-flagellation that, you know, like every time one report of something that goes wrong happens, we blow it up and say, oh, we should make sure it doesn't become a systematic problem. So my sense is that we work pretty hard to proactively bring women into the workforce, figure out how to like protect homeowners from doing this, figuring out how we actually wean ourselves off of subsidies. It's amazing how like like respectable and responsible we are compared to the oil industry who basically just denies that anyone 
ever got fracking fluids in their, uh, in their water supply. So if you want to take a look at this report, just check it out on our website. We'll have it linked there. Uh, I did struggle with whether or not to cover it, but I, I think it's important for the solar industry to understand these arguments and the groups behind them. So with that, we will tell you something you don't know. And Catherine is up first this week. Okay, great. I have two quick things. Um, one is, I don't know if everybody, if you guys saw the New York Times um, yesterday, Krugman had a, a, a piece on invisible green triumphs, and he has a great chart of solar and wind energy um, just to show how well renewables are doing. I thought it was a good piece worth looking at in the New York Times. Um, and the other thing is that there's a really good blog that Evan Gillespie from the Sierra Club, he runs the My Generation campaign at the Sierra Club. He did kind of a, a data dump on the CPUC's um, rate design proposal, and he kind of goes through what was good about it, um, that there are no fixed charges, the not so good, what, what he called the bad, which is that they've lowered the number of tiers, so there are only two tiers that could discourage conservation. And then kind of the ugly part, which was the breakdown of the process by which they used to to come together on this agreement. So anyway, it was interesting. I'd love to talk about it in more detail at some point with you guys um, as it starts spinning out. But anyway, it's worth looking at under, uh, it's it's called, um, it's sierraclub.org slash planet. Well, I missed both of those. So you told me something I didn't know. I'll check them mm-hmm. out. Jager, you got a good story this week? Yeah. And so, you know, out of all of the news stories that's been going on, you know, Donald Trump and his hatred of Mexicans and, you know, Grexit and Iran nuclear oh, the, deal. His hatred of Mexicans is so last week. This week he tweeted out He's, a picture with uh, some SS troops at the bottom of it. Well, even he's number one in the polls. But with all of that stuff. I missed the story that the XM Bank has just basically gone on hiatus. That's yeah. right. I mean, the, the, what the, the hell? Like, yeah, I mean, we, we're talking about Australia and Spain. We got to look in our own backyard. Yep. Yeah, I think this is a, a conversation that we need to have next week or in a coming episode. So, yeah, the, the, the funding has lapsed. And this is an organization that has supported hundreds of millions of dollars of deals and technology transfers overseas for renewable energy companies. So a big deal for the industry. And I get that it's a boondoggle for Boeing and GE and others. But look, I mean, so is Airbus. They have their own thing. And so we're just trying to keep pace with, you know, sort of the mutually assured destruction on that. But they do so much good work for small companies. And it just seems like a travesty for people to make this into a political issue when every single district in the United States is benefiting from the U.S. Exim Bank. Yeah, we'll see what happens. Uh, there are going to be some amendments during various and sundry, like the highway bill discussion of the amendments on XM. We'll see where it goes. But there are some on both sides of the aisle that really like it and think it's really, really important and are supportive. But there are a couple out there, a couple of folks out there really trying to kill, you know, want to make sure it dies. Well, you guys, I have another very self-serving Tell me something I don't know. Uh, I'm going to push my podcast postscript again because I have a new episode that came out last night on this myth that was created in 1975 on global cooling. And Newsweek article published this piece called The Cooling World that uh, warned people that scientists were predicting a potential ice age. It was going to have serious political consequences around the world. And um, it was a very incomplete piece. I talked to the writer who actually wrote it for the podcast. I talked to people who cataloged peer-reviewed papers at the time, 
who showed that scientists were not predicting global cooling. They were predicting global warming at that time. But uh, I, I put this together because it's something that we hear presidential candidates, you know, Mike Huckabee and Ted Cruz most recently on national press interviews said that scientists were predicting global cooling in the 70s. And when the facts didn't add up, now they're saying we're all going to burn up and take over the energy sector through the government. So it's a really fascinating look at why that myth has persisted 40 years later. And um, I also talked with Gavin Schmidt, who is the head of NASA's Goddard Institute for Climate Studies, and he's just a really articulate guy, and he provides some of the context. So it's relevant to the uh, folks listening to this podcast. I wouldn't push my podcast if it weren't relevant. But <laughs> Your podcast is fantastic. Though, it is. So I, don't, awesome. I think everyone should should listen to it. But, but I do think that what's happening on this sort of systematic dumbing down of America. I mean, the fact of the matter is that like you have like 16 candidates for president in the Republican field and Donald Trump by basically going after, you know, like basically people are now calling it Trumpisms, right? Becomes number one. Now, Mike Huckabee basically has to be even more stupid to be able to like be number one. And then someone else has to be even more stupid and offend another group. It's like at some point, like the madness has to stop. <laughs> I don't know when. I think that's right. But I don't think on this global cooling thing that they're trying to be stupid. I think they believe what they're saying. Um, and I think it's a major journalistic problem because when you listen to the questions and what Chuck Todd and uh, this gentleman at the, I think it was the Dallas Tribune or the Dallas Morning News, uh, the, the, the editorial interview with Ted Cruz, they, I mean, they flat out, don't know how to respond to these assertions that scientists were predicting global cooling. And these are pretty basic well, facts. Well, there's, there's big lies and then there's big fat liars. And <laughs> like the thing is, is like I know some of these people, like Bobby Jindal, for instance, he is not that stupid. He is so freaking brilliant that there is no way in hell that he actually believes the crap that's coming out of his mouth. Well, anyway. the sad thing is that like the people who are going to be able to be participate in the debates are the ones that do the dog whistle speech. And then you don't get to hear from people who actually may have good ideas. And that's too bad. Yeah. Well, you know, I want to see a Tim Pawlenty or a John Huntsman get up there. But I will take a Donald Trump up there for the first debate. I have to say I'm looking forward to that. Yeah. (laughs) Who doesn't love a little bread and circus? Uh, So anyway, the podcast is Postscript. And uh, check out the Global Cooling episode, which I dropped last night. And that is all we have for you on the Energy Gang, folks. Thank you so much for listening. To get all 93 episodes of our show, this is the 94th. Head on over to greentechmedia.com slash podcast, or check us out on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, and Swell, or you can take our RSS feed there, which is on the website, and integrate it into the player of your choice. Um, A lot of people think that you can just get it through iTunes or these other apps, but really, any type of podcatcher will use our RSS feed. And we've got some links to background stories related to the topics in this week's episode at our website. And it's, again, greentechmedia.com slash podcast. Catherine, great to hear your voice again. Have a good weekend. Thanks. You too. Jigger, glad you're safe and sound in New York City after your your travels. And uh, we'll talk to you next week. Thanks. This was a great week. With Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shaw, I'm Stephen Lacey. And we are The Energy Gang, a production of greentechmedia.com. We'll catch you next week.